0: Hello, and welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solestchurch.com. Ecclesiastes 7, beginning in verse 15, Solomon writes, He says, I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. Wisdom strengthens the wise, more than ten rulers, of the city. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. All this I have proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. I find more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Here's what I have found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason, which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes." This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. Let's say that again. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. If you would just join me in a word of prayer here one more time. Lord, we're thankful for your word being open to us. Um, Lord, we need, our, we need more than our own wisdom this morning To be guided through life, we need you. Lord, we we need your righteousness, we need your direction, we need the truth of your love. So this is your time. Uh, God, you know my desire here every week is to move out of the way so that you can do your thing. So I just present myself to you as an available vessel for your voice to speak. I pray. Only by the power of your spirit that you would use what I've prepared here, this this sermon, God, to communicate your heart. I ask that you would, in your grace, speak through me. And ultimately, as we always do, we pray for ears to hear what your spirit wants to say to us. May that be why we're here, to hear from you. So would you speak to us? We ask you, Holy Spirit, to, to speak. And Jesus, we give you this time. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All righty. Well, uh, this morning, here is what I uh, would like to preach from. The, the title that i like to preach from this morning is Wrestling with Righteousness. Wrestling with Righteousness. You know, one of the uh, most appealing things about the book of Ecclesiastes is, I think, the honesty that Solomon has in regards to the human experience. Um, There's something about the way that Solomon is describing his journey through life that's just relatable to normal people like you and me, uh, who have more than just truths about God, but have real struggles in life that we're trying to make sense of. Uh, That's exactly what this book has been written um, to do. Its it's purpose in Solomon writing has been to expose the honesty of life in a brutal fallen world. In a sense, Solomon is also defending the Christian or the, the, the monotheistic God of Israel position, I should say, uh, by experimenting with a life as though God were optional. He's kind of like, if we were to take God and put him over here, what would life be like? And that's what he's describing. And it's a very real life, as we say, as we would know as Christians. It's life in a fallen world. How many of us know this is not the world that God designed? Not in its perfect and pure form. Uh, there, are so much, uh, there is so much still that is left that bears the image of God and his created design, but there is a brokenness to humanity and a brokenness to this world that Solomon even just referenced there. God made things right, but he says man has sought out all sorts of schemes and has really messed this thing up. And so Solomon, he gives us sort of this breath of fresh air because it's like, okay, I can be a follower of Jesus. I can be a person of faith. And listen, still wrestle with things in life. Still wrestle with what I believe about God and life. Aren't you glad that there's like grace and space for that? Aren't you glad that you don't have to button it all up and have it all together? Someone say yes, right? Aren't you thankful that God gives us room to wrestle? And that's why Solomon, again, is so refreshing because of his willingness to wrestle. He's wrestled through all sorts of things. He's wrestled through, like, what's the meaning of my work? I mean, really, what's it all going to amount to? Is there more to my job than taking home a paycheck? Or what's the ultimate meaning in in wrestling with life and death? And am I going to see my loved ones one day or not? I mean, he has gone through uh, almost the full extent of research to make sense of life, as he calls, under the sun. It's sort of this under the sun premise, life in this world. And here in chapter 7, Solomon is wrestling with probably all of our top contender in life. How many of you guys would say that in life you have personally wrestled with righteousness? Anybody? One or two of you? Maybe... Good, good. I'm not alone here. Um, Certainly, this is one of those really relatable sections. Wrestling with righteousness. Now, that's a, a real churchy Bible word, isn't it? Righteousness. It's not kind of what you said the other day when you you know, I don't know, uh, had that delicious meal, and you're like, you know, it was just filled with righteousness on the plate there, and how did it taste like righteousness? And, or maybe you did, you're like, righteous, it was good, maybe you did do that. But um, the word righteous, I just want you, you to picture in your mind's eye the Garden of Eden. I want you to picture a world that God creates, and as God creates it, he looks upon his design, and he says, man, it's good. It just fits. It's right. It works out. God and man, they're connected. They're united. Man and man, they're in harmony, in unison. Man and the earth, they're working to accomplish God's beautiful vision for it. Everything is right. Righteous. And then through sin, things go wrong. Wrongness. Now, there's this great vision of the new heavens and the new earth, this hope that one day God is not going to just scrap earth, like, okay, that didn't work, you know, put it in the the garbage bin, but he's going to renovate the earth, and he's going to make all things new, the Bible says. He's going to restore what's been broken, and the Bible says that in that new place, the new heavens and the new earth, our great hope, will be a place in which righteousness dwells. We have this hope that one day things will be made right. So you have that vision of what was, And we have that hope for what will be. And then you have your day tomorrow. Then we have this morning. Waking up and wrestling with righteousness. Well, Solomon is describing that wrestle, that conflict in the human experience. And here's what he gives us. Solomon gives us three realities of your and my wrestle with righteousness and life. And here's what he says. Here's the first thing. The first thing that we see is that to wrestle with righteousness, this is the first one, write this down, number one, to wrestle with righteousness, Solomon would say, is first to feel conflicted. We'll start here. To wrestle with righteousness in this life is to feel conflicted. Solomon sort of describes feeling a bit conflicted in regards to righteousness there in verse 15. Let's look at it again. He says this, He says, I've seen everything in my days of vanity. That's awesome. Solomon has seen it all. He he certainly knows it all. He's had it all, but he's like, I've also seen it all. As you guys know, my wife and I, Britt, a lot of you guys do, we celebrated our 10 year anniversary last week. We got to go for a nice getaway to New York City for the weekend. It was so romantic, not just because it was New York, but because there were no kids. Okay? It was the best weekend ever. But there is, like, this anxiety the whole time of, like, we're in New York City, and there's so much to see, but so little time. And there's that feeling. Well, here's Solomon at the end of his life going, I've seen it all. All right? And he certainly has. I mean, he's had his view from the throne of Israel. I mean, if anybody has seen it all, it's this guy. But it's not just the good times that Solomon has seen. He's feeling conflicted here because of some of the difficult stuff that he's seen. What is it? Verse 15. Here's what he's seen. He says, There is a just man... Or we might say a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And then on the other hand, you have a wicked man who prolongs his life in righteousness. Feel conflicted much? What? Psalm looks out and he goes, I see good people suffering and I see uh, wicked people being blessed. What's up with that? What's up with this scenario where... You know, we've, we've all seen that case where the, the, the good guy dies and the bad guy wins. What's going on here? You, you ever come face-to-face with this, by the way, in a real way? Maybe someone you love, someone you knew personally, you looked on at their life, and you're like, what, they got taken way too soon. And they were, they were righteous people, they were obedient people, and you look on and it's like, Solomon presents two issues, right? One question is the question of why do bad things happen to good people? But Solomon goes, that's not as hard as this. Why do good things happen to bad people? That's even sometimes more conflicting, isn't it? Like, what? What's going on here in a world where, listen, righteousness doesn't always pay and wickedness sometimes does? So that's the world Solomon's living in. I mean, I know I'm supposed to do the right thing, it's what you do, but here's what I'm noticing. I'm noticing people that are much more successful, living a lot longer in wickedness. I might try this wicked thing out, you know? It's like, maybe wickedness is where it's... I mean, he's conflicted. Do you see this? So much so that he goes on to describe the motive behind why we would pursue it. Now, I think it's interesting. Um, Here, Solomon's conflict is not with the nature of righteousness. And in this day and age, I think this is important to mention, there was, Solomon wrestled with a lot of things, but for him, there was no question of whether or not there was such thing as right and wrong. I think that's important. That was not his conflict. We live in a day and age of what's called moral relativism that sort of says, you know, there's no real black and white. There's just whatever you can define and make sense of. And so you don't ever hear, we were joking earlier, but you don't ever hear words like righteousness and wickedness anymore. Those are like Christian bad words. That's offensive. Because we're not really all that bad, and who's to really say what's right and wrong? And Solomon is describing uh, the nature of righteousness. Let's just just point this out here, okay? To Solomon, one day, uh, all of us are not going to be judged according to our own moral standards, but every human is going to be judged according to God's standard. That's the only standard. Do we know this? Regardless of what we've created. So that's the world that Solomon's operating within. His conflict is not with the nature of righteousness, but his conflict is with the outcome, like what it's not producing. And in that, it's kind of this conflict of, why should I actually be righteous then? If good people lose and bad people seem to win, why should I be righteous? Why? The question of why in this conflict. Now Solomon gives us, as he goes on here, he gives us three approaches. Uh, Even in this room, when it comes to your approach to righteousness, uh, we all find ourselves in, in at least one of these three different approaches. But let's look at each of these. The first is there in verse 16. He says, Do not be, notice this, overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Now, it's interesting. Some people might look at this and go, You know, what Solomon is advocating for is like a balanced approach to righteousness. You know what I mean? Like, listen. You know, there's a whole reap and sow mentality, but look, guys, being righteous and religious is not going to keep you from dying on this earth. It's not going to keep you from getting a disease, getting a sickness. So Solomon's kind of just like, just, just take it easy, okay? Like, Jesus is good, but not too much, All right, Dial it back a little bit. He, you know, not too much righteousness, and that's not what Solomon is saying. He's not advocating this balanced life. He's actually leading us to reject a certain approach, and I would call this approach the transactional approach. This transactional approach. He says, do not be overly righteous. This is one way to approach righteousness and to approach God. And it's through this perspective of, of, and I love the word overly, it literally means excessive. Like, that's a bit excessive. To be excessively righteous, to be obsessively righteous with the mindset of, if I do good, God owes me. Right? Transactional. So it kind of puts God on an even keel and it says, God, if I do enough good, you're sort of in debt to me. And I've been pretty good, so therefore, it's your turn to be good to me. God, I've gone to church three times this month. Three times. I skipped that fourth time, but hey, three times. Majority of the time, I'm righteous. You know what I mean? All right? God, I've done this. I've done that. I know this. I know that a transactional approach to God and this perspective, what it's trying to do is earn God simply through overly righteousness, okay? Okay. Um, we see this all throughout the Bible. We see this all throughout church, this perspective of self-righteousness. i got to be more righteous than you so I can curry more of God's favor. So that's one way to approach it. Sort of treating God, you can think of it this way, like a cosmic vending machine. Right? If I put in enough goodness, hopefully he will hook me up with some uh, Mountain Dew of blessing. Okay. Um, sorry, next point. Um, Now, within this transactional righteousness approach, what you have is you have a whole generation that's rising up, and that has been rising up for the past decade or more in the church. I grew up in this. I grew up with um, a, a church background and with some proximity to the gospel message, but how many of us know that you can get so close to the gospel that it actually doesn't get into your heart, just into your ears? You can get so close to a God of grace and love that you might be able to articulate every verse about his grace and love, but you don't personally know him as a God that just approves you as you are in him. And so what you have is a generation in the past that has been um, reared into a certain theology that's been called moralistic therapeutic deism. Have you heard of this before? Moralistic therapeutic deism, it assumes that it's Christian faith and that it's theologically accurate, but it's really just... Being moral, so some good things here is God wants me to be good, and um, by the way, deism, there's a God, but he's he's kind of out there. He kind of just got the ball ro- rolling, and then he went on vacation, so he's not really connected to my life. He just wants me to be good, so that I, can my highest goal, is to be happy, and that's my approach to the Christian faith. It's very transactional. Now, here's what I see happen a lot, and I, I did high school ministry for a long time, and I would see it a lot in, amongst youth race in the church. What happens is. You end up with a whole generation that does their best to pull off these great feats of morality, like I didn't see the rated R movie. Okay, I didn't drink beer. I went to the party, but I didn't drink. All right, or I I, I don't say those curse words. I say Christian curse words. Okay, I'm not like them. All right, um, and and I go through this list of things, and 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 then what happens is I graduate from high school and I don't get into the school that I wanted to. Or a loved one passes away or tragedy strikes and the mindset is, God, I was good. And this is how you repay me? This is how you, you respond to me? Now, no, I, I've seen a lot of people walk away from the faith because of this conflict. Anybody else? You, you actually ever personally wrestle with this? Like, God, why am I suffering if I'm doing good? Now, uh, without saying too much more about that, let's move on to the next approach. Now, the, uh, the other extreme, Solomon says, is a more, we'll call this a transgressional approach. Which spell check wouldn't let me have this as a word. So I said, I'm going to transgress against spell check, and it is a word today, okay? So transgressional is the next approach. He says, don't be overly wicked, or don't be overly righteous, don't be excessively righteous, transactional, but also don't be overly wicked. That's the other view. That's the view that, that sort of says, okay, listen, I'm not going to be obsessed with righteousness. And it's funny how often the, um, the self righteous obsession, I've seen it, it usually leads to the other extreme of like, okay, I'm going to go this way. I'm going to go out for all out hedonism and wickedness, overly wicked, transgressional, um, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. If God doesn't work for me, pra- pragmatic view of God, this must. And at least, even if it doesn't give me eternal hope, even if it doesn't satisfy all my philosophical issues, even if I don't have my shame redeemed, at least it feels good. I'll be overly wicked, I'll cheat, and and at the end of the day, this approach, the transgressional approach, he says, of being overly wicked, um, it's really banking on first that there's not a God, number one, like, I'm just really hoping there's not a God, and I'll even be militant in my atheism, because I can't even imagine that there is a God, because if there is a God, I'm accountable to him, so Romans 1 says that this approach, what it does is it takes the truth of God, and it suppresses it. Like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. Like, there's no God. And you're like holding it. Ah! Right? Because of, listen, the consequences of that reality. I mean, if there is a God over obsessive wickedness, indulgence and in sin is a big deal. Now, maybe, maybe not. Uh, maybe for you, it's not that you're an atheist, but here's what you're banking on. It's either you're banking that there's, there is no God, or if there is a God, he's cool. He's like a cool dad, you know? That's ah, all right. Sort of. That's kind of the mindset. He's, we're kind of banking on a God that's a lot more progressive than my parents. And he's a lot more cool and lenient. He's kind of postmodern God. He, he, he just, and here's our, here's our hope. A lot of people are living with this hope. I know I'm living in blatant rebellion against God, but I'm just hoping God will let it slide. And I think. Solomon would say, that's a gamble. There's a lot at stake in that gamble of a God sort of just being passive and not really caring about sin, the very sin that put his son on a cross. But but Solomon says, okay, let's reject those two approaches to righteousness. Let's reject trying to be good enough to earn God. Let's reject just being completely rebellious to disregard God. Here's the place that Solomon leads us for the proper motive to be righteous. He says... If you grasp this, he says, it's good that you grasp this. In one hand, we grasp one of these truths. And don't remove your hand for the other. So we got two handfuls here of wisdom from Solomon. But he says, on top of your two handfuls, I want to dump one more truth. He who fears God will escape them all. Isn't that interesting? So this is the last approach. What We would call this a theological approach to righteousness and the conflict of why. Solomon says, it's the beginning of wisdom, he goes on to say, to fear the Lord. So the proper approach to righteousness, Solomon would say, is not so that you can get something from God, but because God is holy and because there is a God. And according to this God, sin is so, it's so horrid, it's so counter to his nature that he can't even look upon it. So you ought to fear him. Why should I be righteous, Solomon would say, because God is holy. There's a God, and the word fear there has to do with awe and wonder and response of who he is. I see who he is, and I respond accordingly. Now, that's the, the first experience of wrestling with righteousness as you feel conflicted. Now, as you move on, we see Solomon gets to this next place of um, feeling, we'll write this down number two, feeling convicted, feeling convicted. Because it's a nice thought to say, hey, let's just fear God and be righteous, Let's go. But what happens is us, right? So it's even in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul says this, you know, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. You have this great vision of what we're called to, but what does Solomon go on to say in verse 20? Look at verse 20. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. It's like, did someone copy and paste Paul into the book of Ecclesiastes? This is very Pauline. For all have, what, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Paul, so this is awesome. Solomon's like, man, it's not fair when just people suffer, but they don't exist. So, okay. Or then he says, you know what, the, the reason why we should be righteous is because we should fear God and we should be righteous. But no one's ever done that. There is not a just man on earth who, in, in the original language, is who always does good. You're like, I'm, I'm actually pretty good. I, you know, I'm, I know, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm also a stand-up guy. And I also have some stuff together. And, and, and Paul would say, Jesus would say, Solomon would say, there's not one just man on earth who does good and does not sin. So this is kind of a, a teaser for the end, but, but R.C. Sproul said it this way so geniusly. He said, um, why do bad things happen to good people? He said, well, that's only happened once, and he volunteered for it. I mean, Solomon sets up this premise of frustration, but then he gets down to the heart of the matter and says, at the end of the day, we can feel conflicted, but before we feel conflicted, we should feel convicted. The word convicted, it's, it's one of the words ascribed to one of the, the missions and the jobs of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. The job of the Holy Spirit is to open our eyes to see the reality of how much we need Jesus because of how sinful we are. Any theology that, that, that does not lead you to that is broken. Any theology that doesn't lead you to recognize how much more and more you need Jesus because of how sinful you are is not of the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit comes to do is not affirm how awesome we are, but how in desperate need we are for salvation. To convict the world. Conviction. Another lost word. I mean, come on, even today, like in my life, when's the last time I genuinely was like, God, I'm convicted over that. Not careless, but convicted. This is... The very nature of man, sinful. He, he, Solomon tells us at the end, he gives us a little theological statement, right, in verse 29. He says that God made man upright. Do You see that there in verse 29? But man sought out many schemes. Man wasn't always this way. That's some good theology there. God made man in his image right up, right side up. But he says, but mankind in his rebellion against God has been rather inventive with sin. I, that's interesting. Schemes. The word schemes there means inventive, innovative. All right. So the greatest mark on history with, with man's innovation is not just the technology we've created, it's the sins we've come up with. I mean, that's what he's saying. Look at man, how fallen and, and broken in every one of us. Every one of us. And that's uh, Paul's whole premise in Romans, right? That's the, the place that a lot of us tend to go to right away. Uh, we know what Paul says, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, that there's not a just man, as, as Solomon says, who fears God always. But it's interesting how Paul builds to that point. Chapter 1 is where Solomon really harps on sort of the obvious sinners, like the front door sinners. Like, oh, you're in South Beach? yep yeah, I know you. Okay. Oh, you went to Vegas in City. All right. Yeah, your hometown, I bet. Right? Like, Paul, he takes chapter 1 to sort of rebuke the overly wicked sinner. Like, and he's real about it. He's like, God's wrath is revealed against you, letting you go on and do your thing and self-destruct. That's Romans 1. All are guilty. And he's, he's speaking to the Gentile. He's speaking to the irreligious. He's speaking to the indulgent. He's speaking to those who are not at soulless church on a Sunday morning. And it's as, as Paul is rebuking them in Romans 1, you can just sort of imagine that the, the self-righteous peanut gallery on the side, the people who are in church are like, yeah, Paul, tell them. Amen. Amen. They're wicked. And Paul's like, hold on. Glad you're in church this morning. Um, And he says to them, he says, do you not think that you're going to be judged for the fact that you teach others to do something, but you yourself don't do it? Do you think that because you're in church, you get some sort of, like, spiritual shield that makes you, like, not convicted and not guilty before God? And then chapter 2, he calls out the self-righteous. There's not this category before God, the the really righteous, or, like, the really wicked, and then, like, the kind of wicked— it's been said, right, it's all level at the foot of the cross. And Jesus came to really expose that further. He, he, he would speak to those religious elite of the day that had kept the whole law, but their understanding of sin is what I don't and I do, uh, I, I do obediently or, or not disobediently. And Jesus said, well, it's also your heart. It's also your thoughts. Yeah, okay, you didn't commit adultery in the flesh, but if you're lusting after that woman in your heart, is that not sinful? Okay, you didn't murder that guy. Good job, gold star but you hate him, you think that bears the image of God? Jesus came to dig deep into the fallenness of the human heart. This is what Paul does, so, so much so that in chapter 3, what Paul says, here's Paul's premise of the first three chapters of Romans, all are under sin, from the self-righteous to the unrighteous. It's, just, it's not that you know, some are lost, it's just that some are lost in their badness, and some are lost in their goodness. Some are blind to their sin because of their own righteousness. Now, this is what what actually Solomon says is one of the biggest obstacles to us seeing our own sin. One of the biggest obstacles to conviction is comparison. One of the biggest obstacles to genuine conviction is comparison. He goes on to say this. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times you know that your own heart has cursed, cursed, uh, cursed others. So he's speaking to, by the way, this tendency. This is interesting, isn't it? Like how, like my sin always looks worse on you. You know what I mean? It's like, oh my gosh, how could they? In the mirror, it's like, ah, you know. But he's speaking to this reality of how whenever someone sins against us, we always want, we always want justice. But whenever I'm the one committing the sin, we want mercy. mercy. You know. I'm not like them. I, and, and Solomon's like, don't, don't do that. That's called self-righteousness. And that's one of the biggest obstacles keeping us from seeing our own sinfulness. It's comparison. It's the comparison game where you go around determining your right standing with God compared to someone else. And you are using a broken metric system. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. There's no ladder long enough that you could climb to get to God here. Jesus told a great parable about this in Luke 18. You know this parable in Luke 18? I just want to read it to you. He said, It says this, and I love the context to which Jesus spoke. it. It says in Luke 18, verse 9, To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. A tax collector in that day and age sort of represented the front door overly wicked sinner. They had betrayed their own people often. It says, the Pharisees stood by, they went up to the temple to pray. Both these guys are in church, we could say. And the Pharisee, here's the righteous guy, he stood by himself and here's what he prayed. This is his prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. I mean, and with the guy within an earshot, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Mm, he even amen himself. Amen. And I give a tenth of all I got. I'm a tither. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to the heaven. He beat his own breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's prayer, by the way. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified or righteous before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Comparison, the enemy of conviction. Well, at least I'm not like them. And maybe you've never personally prayed that prayer, but haven't we all naturally had that thought? And that's not the game to play. That's not the door to open. Don't go into that room. Instead, be in that place that this man was. Honest about who you are before God. A sinner. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are guilty before him. All of us. Now... The point here is this too. Paul goes on to say that there's actually great weight to this. This isn't a small deal. Like, I got to get an oil change. I'm a sinner. I got to, you know what I mean? Like, this is a significant. Um, if you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus to save you, the most pressing issue on your life right now is the consequences of your sin. More important than anything else you're trying to figure out, you're trying to fix your family, you're trying to fix your job. The biggest issue in your life right now is is you're standing before God, and every human born into this world is broken in that relationship. It's serious what sin has caused. The two words that we commonly see in Scripture to describe the consequence of sin, it's the word death. Uh, The wages of sin is death, but you can think of it this way. Condemnation, separation. I think our two biggest fears. My two biggest fears is to be separated from God forever right now and then forever, and condemnation to be judged according to my wickedness. That's terrifying. Paul goes on to write that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's the state that Scripture describes our our, our very nature. That's where we're at. And so instead of trying to self-justify, we can be real. So the next time someone sins against you, You don't have to go, how dare you? Here's what Spurgeon says. Spurgeon says, if anyone's talking trash about you, he says, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him. For you're worse than he thinks you are. He kind of takes Solomon a step further. Solomon's like, if someone curses you, you've done the same thing. Don't get mad at them. So, uh, Spurgeon's like, yeah, but if someone curses you, that's probably, they're probably saying nice things about you compared to who you really are. I mean, this is this view that, that the Bible gives us. I mean, because we understand the nature of sin is that it's against a holy God. We can never begin to wrap our minds around the weight of that kind of offense. All we really know in this life is the, the nature of our sins against each other, which are serious as well because we've been made in the image of God. But to try to fathom the consequences of sinning against a holy God and to sit here and try to act like we know what would be just if I was God and I was the judge, here's, I wouldn't be that serious. Who are we to even understand that? Now, this one rapper is a, is a, not Kanye West, that's next week. I'll quote him next week. But I, I had to purposely discipline myself not to have a Kanye quote this weekend because I, I had two last week. Anyway, two, okay, anyway. Um, This guy, his name is Lin, he's a Christian hip-hop artist, and he says this in one of his lyrics. He says that God is not subject to fallen notions of fairness. Think about that. God is not subject to our own fallen notions of what I deserve or what I don't deserve. He is God. We're made in his image. We've broken that picture. We've fallen. We've rebelled. We, In our own right, we're convicted as criminals before him. And this is where this wrestle gets real. Uh, the last point, and um, I'm happy they all rhyme, so don't judge me, but the third point is to feel constricted. This is the third aspect of wrestling with righteousness. When you wrestle with righteousness, you're going to feel conflicted. Like, why should I do this? And then even when you get to the motive of why you should, the reality is we ought to feel convicted because we know that we have fallen short of God's standard, all of us, every one of us, the religious to the irreligious. But, but the biggest problem with this is not just that we do sins, but the way that Jesus tells us is that we are slaves of sin. We're constricted. In John 8, Jesus said, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. This is the real issue here. Uh, Solomon goes on to describe this. And he gets personal. He he says in verse, notice verse uh, 25, he's talking about his own journey, trying to get to the bottom of righteousness and foolishness in this world. And he says, as I've gone on this search... He says, here's what I've found. I've found even more bitter than death. So he's searching this world, looking for it to make sense of things, and he's found a lot of death. He's talked, it's like one of his favorite topics. Like, hey, guys, you want to talk about death? Hey, it's Solomon. Let's talk. Um, and it's like, okay, bro, take it easy, all right? But Solomon goes, I- I've seen a lot of death, but what I've found more than death is bitterness in life. I- I've seen sinfulness in life. Look what he goes on to say. He says, the woman, here's some of the bitterness he's found whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. So Solomon likens sin to, uh, to being trapped by this picture of a prostitute. That's how he describes sin. Um, and let's, let's also know that as Solomon is doing this. He's most likely reflecting on his own moral failings. He's speaking from firsthand experience. He, you know, he goes on to say, as I as look for righteous people, he uses this poetic expression. He goes, I found one among a thousand men. And that's not saying literally, I, like, 99, a thousand. Oh, you're righteous, the first one. It's an expression to say, like, one in a thousand. You know what I mean? And then he goes on to say, but as I searched among the women, there was none righteous. Now, that's messed up, okay? Like, like I'm with you, all right? Like, um, it's sexist, isn't it? Like it's, it can come off that way. But uh, think about the places that Solomon would have been searching for righteous women. You know, what I mean, it's like I went to the strip club and I couldn't find any righteous women. <laughs> it's essentially, what Solomon is saying in his life of sinfulness. He, here's what he has found: he has found the nature of sin in his life having all these concubines, having his own heart, Solomon's own heart, the Kings tells us was turned away from God after other gods through his own sin, his sexual sin, after after idolatry. And as he's describing the nature of sin as this woman, he he describes it as, as being trapped. Notice it there, snares. You see that word snares? That's like a bear trap. Think of a bear trap or something. Hebrews tells us that it's the sin that so easily ensnares us. Right? It's not hard, by the way, to get trapped in sin. It's really easy. It's natural. Okay? You don't do it on accident, right? Or rather, you don't really do it on purpose as much as you do it on accident. It just happens. Um, he says nets. That has to do with... Fit. It's like being caught. That's the idea. Her hands are fetters. That, that speaks of, of being bound, imprisoned, being shackled. And then he says this, that the sinner shall be trapped by her. You see the constricted nature of sin that he's talking about? The nature of sin is not just that we do it, but that we can't stop doing it. Constricted, stuck in it, the same patterns. Let me ask you this morning, what's your trap? Come on, I know you have a trap. I have a trap, you have a trap, we all have a trap. Is it the trap of worry? The trap of compulsive spending and greed? The trap of judgment? The trap of sexual sin? The trap of gossip? The trap of bitterness and resentment? Some of you are living in the trap of laziness. What's your trap? Sin, it entraps us, he says. Jesus said, if you commit sin, you're a slave of sin. And this is what Solomon is is describing in this wrestle. As you read on, right, I mean, the the book of Ecclesiastes is meant to be read within the whole context of the Bible. You see that it's more than just like, oh, I can't stop doing this. The biggest issue is that we are constricted not just to our sin, but apart from Jesus, we are constricted to the consequences of our sin. You ever tried to clean up your own mess? Without Jesus, there's no cleaning up the mess. We're constricted. Condemnation separation, awaiting his just and holy judgment for my crimes and my sins. Uh, To make matters worse, here's what Paul goes on to say in Romans 3. He says, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So not only have we been separated from God and we are unrighteous and trapped in sin, but there is no amount of righteous doing to get us out. I mean that's the nature of being trapped isn't it you need to be rescued you know you know this is where solomon is helpful to us because solomon is a fellow wrestler he's in the struggle but this is also where solomon is limited to us cuz all solomon can really do here for us is describe our problem but what does that do it's like i know it's like, hey, you're trapped. Yes, I am. But a trapped person can't rescue another trapped person. Okay? A drowning person can't save a drowning person. you get the idea? And the reason why no man can save us or, or you is because at the end of the day, we all have the same problem. What we need is not just a rescuer. We need a righteous rescuer. We need someone who does not have the same problem as we do. We need a defender. We need an advocate that's a God of love and love enough to step into our mess despite us deserving him to do that. No flesh will be justified in his sight. God made man upright, but man has sought out all sorts of schemes. And this is where the message of the gospel comes in like 66 degree weather in South Florida. That though man has sought out many schemes, God has sought out man in the person of Jesus. You see, Jesus, he's constantly, listen, he's constantly the answer to all of Ecclesiastes' problems. Solomon is there to be a signpost to someone greater, to expose what's wrong, to diagnose what's broken so that we might reach in a more genuine way for a cure from Jesus. There's this great scripture in First John, and it tells us that uh, it, Paul John says that I've I've written you these things so that you don't sin. He says this. It's it's not Romans three twenty. I have the wrong reference. It should be First John two one. But I promise you, it's in the Bible. Where whatever book? Hey, it's in there. All right. In First John two, I love this. It says, "If anyone sins, anyone sin in here? Good, me too." If anyone sins, he says, we have an advocate with the Father. Look at this. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Here's the just man. Uh, Solomon says there's not a just man on earth. There wasn't in Solomon's time, but there was years later. The righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He goes on to say who is the sacrifice, the satisfaction for our sins. I just want to let this marinate for a little bit more. Uh, We see the same conflict with Paul in Romans 7. Paul says, a wretched man that I am. This is being constricted. Who will deliver me from this body of death? You ever been here? Here I am, stuck in my same pattern, stuck in my same habits, unable to get right with God. And Paul answers his own question by saying, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we enter, you know, stage right. Jesus enters as the righteous advocate, as the righteous one who's able to save us and rescue us. Now, here's the problem we face. The problem we face in our unrighteousness, facing separation and condemnation from God, is that not only can we not make ourselves righteous, but God can't maintain his own justice and just let us go. Do you know what I'm saying? He can't just go, you know what, I'll let it slide. Because we don't want a God like that. We want a God of justice, don't you? We want want a God of rightness. We don't want a God who changes. We, We don't want a God who shifts. We want a God who divides the night from the day, dark and light. And so he can't just, in his justice pass over the crimes we've committed like nothing. So so Romans tells us what he does instead is he provides a substitute. So Jesus Christ, the righteous, the Bible says it this way, that Jesus was made, he knew no sin, but he was made sin on our behalf, check this out, so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. It's been called the great exchange, or I like how John Corson describes it, as the great switcheroo, the great switcheroo. God is able to maintain his justice while also justifying me at the same time through the substitutionary atonement, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's what our advocate has done for our sin. Every one of those wicked entrapments that we have fallen into, Jesus himself, listen to this, know this for your life, he became that on the cross. God took your sin and he put it on his son, Jesus. And he punished Jesus as though he were you. So that today he could treat you as though you were Jesus. As though you were righteous. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus does more than wrestle with righteousness. He rescues us from it. He rescues us from our our patterns of addiction are patterns of self-justification and he resets us into a whole new place here's here's the way that paul goes on to say it he says but now anytime you see the butts in the bible they're usually really big butts they're really important okay but now the righteousness of god apart from the law is revealed here's a whole new way to be right you ready for this It's it's been even foreshadowed in the Old Testament, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all of us being justified freely by his grace for the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So right now we have two options. As we wrestle with righteousness, you can keep on trying to earn God's love and live your life on a spiritual treadmill, getting nowhere. That's called works righteousness. Or you can get into some solas, some solus Christus. Some sola fide, faith alone, through Christ alone. Sola gratia, because of his grace alone. Ultimately, soli deo gloria. So it's all for his glory alone, right? That's, that's the best thing about his salvation. It's of grace, not of works, but of Jesus' works, of what Jesus' work has accomplished so that we, who though we are sinners, we can be justified freely by his grace. That sounds like too good to be true, isn't it? No, it's so good because it is true. Think about that. We are justified freely by his grace through faith, through trusting in Christ. Understand that. You are righteous in Christ. You are righteous in Christ. The the language of Scripture is that God has switched garments with you. He's put on a new clean white robe. He calls you a child of his, no longer a slave of sin, now his child. And who can, who's going to get the glory for that in the end? Jesus is. God is. There's not going to be one person that gets into heaven and they're going to be like, yeah, I did it. I made it. All right? Like, I crossed the finish line with my good works. You know. And we won't be able to look at people and go, how would you get here? Like, I did more good than you. And they could say to you the same way you did. Right? Through the same person, the same means, and that's the person of Jesus. And let me say this, that this gives us a whole new motivation for our lives moving forward. In Christ, the primary motive now for my righteousness is not just the fear of God. We don't throw out the fear of God, but we also grow in it to know that it's the love of God that motivates my obedience. So so now as a Christian, I don't pursue righteousness um, so that God will accept me, I pursue righteousness because He has. Not to get, not to earn something, but because Jesus already did, and that becomes a whole new engine for my life, man. So, so now when I fall into sin, listen, Jesus has covered my sin. I don't have to try to cover it myself. I can, I can confess it. We Guess what? Imagine if we as a church were so secure in the grace of God that we were able to rest in it together. Like this is who we are. Nothing without grace. There's no earners of salvation in Soulless church. None of us. There's people in desperate need of the saving grace of Jesus. I like the way Matt Chandler says it. He says, as Christians, we don't lean on the cross and say, you want some of this? Get over here. Come on. There's, come on. You need this. You need this cross, you know, all like prideful. Matt Chandler says what we do is we bow at the foot of the cross and we say there's room. There's room for another sinner to find grace and salvation in the amazing love of Jesus. And that becomes a whole new motive to be obedient to him. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out soullesschurch.com.